Hi, Lauren. I have Senator Graham on the line. Senator Graham, can you hear me? Yes, ma'am. Political courage. It's one of those cliche phrases people in politics throw around a lot. Here's a guy who actually might have a claim to it. You can decide for yourself. How are you? Well, it's pretty hot in Texas. His name is Phil Graham. He was a U.S. senator in Texas. And listen to this. He started his career as a Democrat, got elected to Congress and everything. Then he resigned and ran for re-election as a Republican. In a district where no Republican candidate for Congress had ever gotten more than 34 percent. And he won. So, yeah, that might take political courage. There was another thing he did, too, while he was running for president in 1996. President Bill Clinton was running for a second term, so Republicans were choosing who would run against him. They had a lot of options. Bob Dole, Steve Forbes, Pat Buchanan, Lamar Alexander. And then there was Senator Graham. Well, as far as I understand, and from what I've read, when you ran for president, you chose to campaign in Delaware. Do you know where I'm going with this? Yeah, yeah. It's it's one of these tough deals. It was a tough deal for Senator Graham. That year, while plotting his campaign, Senator Graham was forced to make a big decision. He decided to defy New Hampshire. And how did New Hampshire respond? With political blackmail. I'm Lauren Chulgin, and from New Hampshire Public Radio, this is Stranglehold. No, but really, this episode, it's about that stranglehold. I'm going to tell you about some people who just wouldn't bow down to the first in the nation primary state. Instead, they tried to loosen the grip. For decades, New Hampshire could stand its ground and knock down anybody that tried to steal its prized possession. But how long can a state hold on? Battle lines are being redrawn. And these days, the threats aren't coming from the usual suspects. National politics, the media, technology, it's all changing. And the New Hampshire primary can't escape it. New Hampshire is a great state, and I enjoy campaigning there tremendously. They do not get to control the nominating process for president of the United States. The New Hampshire primary is the identity. It's been the identity of my life, and it's been the identity of the state. Take a look at these quotes. I will pledge to the death to protect the New Hampshire primary, so help me God. It's a, re- it's a reality. we got to change. When New Hampshire is up against the wall, when other states are trying to creep up on the first-in-the-nation primary, people here insist, we're special. No one else can do this like we do. But in the 1990s, another state stepped up and said, hey, you know, we're special, too. We can do retail politics and we've got it all. A big city, a farm belt, a more diverse population. That state, it was Delaware. So I remember a high school teacher I had once saying that Delaware, uh, in many ways, was a microcosm of the United States. This is Richard Forston. He was the longtime attorney for the Delaware Republican Party, and he's always felt that Delaware had early state potential. It's got urban, suburban spots. According to him, the Delaware beaches are a proxy for the West Coast. There's a significant Hispanic population. And if you were looking for a state that was reflective of the country as a whole, Delaware is probably as close as you're going to get. So when you would make that case to people, I mean, no offense to the great state of Delaware, but we're, I mean, it's kind of a surprising pitch to hear. I'm not sure why it's surprising. It just 
just a reflection of kind of our population. I don't know. I just I, I just didn't know that about Delaware, I guess. Okay, can I just say, in my defense, how many people really know about the regions of Delaware or even the regions of New Hampshire, for that matter? Anyway, so it's coming up on the 96 presidential race and Delaware lawmakers pass a law that allows them to hold a primary much earlier in the nomination calendar. I think there was a sense that, uh, you know, if we no one comes to Delaware. I mean, you said it yourself. You don't you don't know that much about Delaware. I will never live this down. And so the, I think the idea was by moving up in the process, uh, you would get candidates coming to Delaware. You would get uh, people more focused on Delaware. And it would be exciting for Delaware to have presidential candidates coming here. Right. Yeah. How much power does a state really get from having its primary so early in the calendar? Well, why does New Hampshire fight so zealously to be the first primary? Fair enough. Now, Oftentimes, if you hear a story about New Hampshire fiercely guarding the primary, the hero of that story is usually Secretary of State Bill Gardner. Remember the story of Iowa and the pigs? These are the kinds of tales that get told around here. There's another one about how Bill Gardner stood up to Nancy Pelosi. In the 1980s, she came to Concord to persuade Gardner to change the date of the New Hampshire primary. Local legend has it, Gardner didn't flinch and Pelosi backed down. But what I've learned is that defending the primary, it's actually a team sport. And it's a responsibility some of the state's top power brokers take very seriously. And this is where the blackmail comes in. It started with a group of Republicans in New Hampshire, guys like Steve Dupree, then the head of the state Republican Party. As the 96 campaign started to kick off, they met with the Republicans running for president. And basically, they threatened them. Voters here, they'd say, they will not look kindly on candidates who campaign in Delaware because Delaware doesn't respect our tradition. And, you know, there's some grumbling from staff that it's blackmail and everything else. But we say, look, we have some of the highest voter turnout. We've been doing this for years. Everybody gets a chance, whether you're the richest candidate, the poorest candidate. You're all treated equally. The party apparatus stays neutral. And Delaware's never done this. The message was, you want to win? Don't go to Delaware. If I were you, I would come out clearly on your very first visit to New Hampshire when you step foot off the plane or out of your car saying, New Hampshire first, and I will not follow the Delaware process. Now, New Hampshire wasn't making an empty threat here. New Hampshire voters had put people like Jimmy Carter, Ronald Reagan, Bill Clinton on a fast track to the White House. So this was a state that really meant something to people who wanted to win. If you think you can do better in Delaware... You can declare that, but you probably should skip coming to New Hampshire. This argument was working with most Republican candidates. It also, by the way, worked for the sitting Democratic president. Someone convinced Bill Clinton not to even file his name on the Delaware ballot. But there were a few holdouts, and one of them was Republican Senator Phil Graham of Texas. You know, I was running for president. I didn't decide who had primaries or caucuses when or where those caucuses occurred. And so I took the sort of stubborn view, not surprising for somebody from Texas, that, you know, I was going to run wherever people were having elections. Graham couldn't stand watching other candidates fold to New Hampshire. I found a quote from him back then where he said, 
If you can't take a little heat on an issue like this, how are you going to deal with the Russians, much less the Democrats? I felt that other people were pandering. And I I just wasn't going to do it. And my point is, if you're so uh, easily intimidated that you won't campaign where people are going to vote because you might offend somebody in another state, you know, when you're dealing with real pressures, how are you going to handle those? I think it's a valid point. Valid or not, Graham was not catching on in New Hampshire. He'll tell you now that, in retrospect, he didn't run the greatest campaign, didn't have the right message for the right time. And he actually thinks maybe this whole Delaware decision he made was also part of the problem. Well, it definitely didn't help me. Let's put it that way. (laughs) Uh, Did it, in the end, would it have made a great deal of difference? Maybe not. but. If I were doing it over again, I would probably start and just campaign in New Hampshire. Nobody paid much attention to the other places. No kidding. You feel that Uh, way? Yeah, I think so. This was the level of power that New Hampshire had back then. They could minimize an argument that would seem to anyone else to be pretty reasonable. I just want to campaign wherever people are having elections. Oh, and by the way... It's worth noting that Delaware was never trying to be first. They just wanted to be earlier, four days after the New Hampshire primary. That was what inspired the blackmail, the pressure, and all the bluster. Not a state that wanted to beat them out, but a state that was within a week of our primary, because that broke New Hampshire's state law. And in the end, New Hampshire won. Yeah, Delaware held a primary, but hardly anyone showed up. So Bill Gardner wrote it off as just a beauty contest. But New Hampshire would soon face more formidable opponents. And if we're going to represent diverse people, diverse people ought to have an early vote in who the nominee is going to be. So that is a problem. We'll get to that in a minute. we got to get away from that music. President Donald Trump came to New Hampshire this summer for a campaign rally, his way of kicking off the 2020 election. There were thousands of people there to see him. My colleague Jason Moon and I were assigned to cover outside the rally, talking with people who were attending and protesting the event. It was loud out there, music, chanting, and I was running around trying to make sure I had talked to a variety of voters for my story. All right, I need more women. And then I spotted someone who looked so familiar. Oh wait, no, let's talk to this guy. But I just couldn't place him. All right, this has got to, we got to, I got to think about this. I think his name is Eric. Um, I decided to just go for it. Jason and I walked over, and I tapped him on the shoulder. Hey. Did we go to college together? I'm Lauren Schultz. No, you didn't go to St. Yeah, we did uh, protect our primary together. That's what it was. Yeah. I'm Lauren. I know who you it. are. All right. Well, I emailed you a little while back. I thought so. Because I, I, I want to be on NPR. So this seems as good a time as any to tell you that Eric Jackman is standing outside this Trump rally in a suit, big red tie, with orangey foundation dripping on his collar and a thick blonde wig on his head. We're going to build a beautiful wall along our border. Eric is a professional Trump impersonator, something he says he wouldn't have been as successful at if he lived somewhere else. I'm a product of the New Hampshire primary. My comedy career is definitely a product of the New Hampshire primary and Donald Trump. And and you know what, Donald, I'll always appreciate that. 
okay? We'll always have Manchester in Moscow, okay? We always will. Eric may be a product of the New Hampshire primary, but I have a confession to make. So am I. I grew up here, and I chose to go to St. Anselm College in Manchester, in part because they advertised a front row seat to the primary, and I totally bought it. Sure enough, I think I met 13 candidates during the 2008 cycle. Eric, our Trump impersonator friend here, he's actually one of the reasons why. He was a leader of this group called Protect Our Primary. They came on campus, and my roommate, a couple friends, and I, we all signed up for it because we were told we'd get to meet presidential candidates. Sounded cool. But turns out we were kind of being used. The guys who ran this thing, they wanted to use our fresh faces to get candidates to promise to keep New Hampshire first against threats from other states. They gave us this roll of stickers that said, protect our primary. And they told us to stick them on candidates' blazers and make sure we got a picture of it. Even better if we were in the picture with the candidate. My college computer is full of photos like this. Me and Hillary Clinton, a sticker on her pinstripe suit. Barack Obama, sticker on his lapel reaching to shake my hand. Rudy Giuliani, lots of photos with Rudy Giuliani. I always felt like, looking back on it now as a skeptical reporter, uh, that we were an easy sell, like candidates love college students. Of course. Well, yeah, there's a level of pandering, of course. If, if a uh, young, starry-eyed college student gets in your face and says, hey, senator, governor, congressman, will you wear this sticker and take a picture and vow to support keeping New Hampshire first? Dude, do you think they're going to say no? At the time, as a myopic college student, this all seemed to me to be totally harmless. I was told that we could lose our first-in-the-nation status when the 2008 primary rolled around, and they said that this would help. But what I know now that I didn't realize then was I was unwittingly engaged in a debate about something much bigger, something at the core of representative democracy. This fight got started by another state, again. But it would spiral into something much, much larger this time. Michigan started it. One of their U.S. senators, Carl Levin, he felt that New Hampshire and Iowa had a stranglehold on the presidential nominating process. That would be a direct quote, by the way. Levin felt that Michigan wasn't getting enough of a say. So he convinced the Democratic National Committee that they should consider bumping Iowa and New Hampshire. The national political parties own the nomination process. So not only do they write the rules, but they can punish states who don't follow along. But once this conversation got really going among DNC members, it kind of evolved. Democrats realized that what they really had on their hands here was not some spat between a big state and two little ones. It was a foundational question about the future of their party and of the electorate. Howard Dean was the chair of the DNC back then. I met up with him recently in Vermont. Iowa and New Hampshire are two of the least diverse states in the country, and our party is very diverse. The Republicans aren't, but we are. And if we're going to represent diverse people, diverse people ought to have an early vote in who the nominee is going to be. So that is a problem. So they start holding meetings, discussing new ways to organize the calendar. Maybe we should rotate, give other states a chance, or maybe we should add more states to the early lineup. Because the thing is, the facts are the facts. New Hampshire has long been one of the whitest states in the nation. The population here is older, wealthier, more educated, and less religious than most of the country. So it was a complicated discussion between national Democratic power brokers. They gathered in hotel ballrooms with ugly carpeting. They sat at long tables arranged in the shape of a U. And they went at it for months. There were a lot of competing interests. And New Hampshire and Iowa, they took a lot of heat. 
Iowa and New Hampshire were told, look, you don't own retail politics. I can say personally, um, as a candidate in Arkansas, retail politics are critical. We're still a state where if you don't show up at the pie supper and you don't show up at the coon supper, and you don't show up and eat everything that flies or walks or whatever, um, you're not going to get elected. Iowa and New Hampshire were told it is just not fair that you guys are first. We all want to see candidates. Two states see candidates 50 and 100 times. Take a look at these quotes. Last election, I'm going to live in Iowa and New Hampshire for the next two years. That's one of our top candidates. Another one, my wife and family and I have taken an apartment in Manchester, New Hampshire. Another one, I will pledge to the death to protect the New Hampshire primary, so help me God. I mean, it's a, re- it's a reality. we got to change. Iowa and New Hampshire were told, you don't reflect the challenges of many people in this nation. 37 million Americans live under the poverty line in this country. We've been their voice and we've been their champions. But often in presidential season, we forget them. Iowa and New Hampshire were told you are too white. Your privileged position is closing off vital voices in our country. I'm frankly, Madam Chair, already uncomfortable with uh, enshrining Iowa and New Hampshire. Earlier this year, I stood in line for four and a half hours uh, to see Rosa Parks, uh, her casket in the Capitol Rotunda. And there were just 30,000 Americans out there in line in the middle of the night basically to acknowledge this woman who had challenged privilege, challenged basically the notion that someone is entitled to a certain position and a certain status. Iowa and New Hampshire, that thing you guard so deeply, that thing you think your states do best, it's time to move on. People in New Hampshire were watching these discussions very closely. Somewhere in the rooms where these things were being said. And in response, New Hampshire Democrats would promise, we are committed to diversity, full stop. But they also said that you all have to consider the unintended consequences of shaking things up. Adding more early states, front-loading the calendar, that could lead to a national primary, weakening the power of retail politics. Is that what we want? Think of how well this system has worked for Democrats. We saw that in 1992 with a little-known governor from Arkansas, Bill Clinton. We saw it in 1976 with a little-known governor of Georgia, Jimmy Carter. New Hampshire has a track record, they'd say. History has shown that. New Hampshire is a place where anyone can be president. And isn't that the American dream? And We are the party of the American dream, ladies and gentlemen, that anybody born in this country can grow up to be president. That's what they would say. That's the argument. New Hampshire offers something special, retail politics. It's the same argument I made as a college student in the mid-2000s, slapping stickers on wannabe presidents, asking them if they'd keep New Hampshire first. I feel a little weird about it in retrospect, to be honest, because I was totally oblivious to these questions about representation. All I knew to value was retail politics. I experienced it myself at 20 years old. I asked many candidates my own questions. I had lunch with one of them. I saw other voters do the same. It did seem special, and it did seem important for democracy. And in the end, 
That's the argument that kept New Hampshire first in 2008, as it has for decades. Democratic Party leaders struck a deal that year, a compromise of sorts. New Hampshire would remain the first primary, Iowa the first caucus, but two more racially and regionally diverse states would be bumped up to join them. This is the fight that moved South Carolina and Nevada up earlier in the calendar. And in the end, New Hampshire politicos were happy with the compromise. They say it's fair, it works, and we're still first. But what if retail politics lost its value? What if the candidates found other ways to win? And what if we face threats that our go-to argument can't beat? When it's from the National Committee or when it's from another state, there is a process moment in which one side wins and one side loses. And New Hampshire has always won. The threats this time are not that way at all. We'll get to that in a minute. I'm sitting in a little studio in the newsroom of the Boston Globe. I've been hanging out for about mm, 20 minutes, microphone at the ready, waiting for reporter James Pendle. Then I hear him, finally, coming closer. He pops his head into the door. Um, I totally fucked you over, so I'm sorry. I'm going to get some tea, and I'm going to be right in here. <laughs> it's fine. This is Pendle. Very kind, very busy, very intense, especially right now, the fall before the New Hampshire primary. He literally took three phone calls while getting that cup of tea. But finally, I get him in a chair. So, um, first... Even though I know you, yeah, no. you tell me what Stranglehold listeners should know about your career. Basically, tell me everything. <laughs> um, the primary is your life. I know. Right. No, I mean, it's, <laughs> it's gonna be, uh, this is not an exaggeration. Since he was in high school, Pendle has intentionally planned his entire life around the first in the nation elections. He went to college in Iowa, and in 2002, he took a job with a barely known blog just so he could cover the New Hampshire primary. And he's been here ever since. It's not just because I love politics. I am deeply, deeply romantic about the idea of the New Hampshire primary. I have cried at several different events. I remember the first time I cried at a New Hampshire primary event. It was 2002. It was in late... So this crying episode was ahead of the 2004 primary. Pendle was at a house party for a candidate. And all our talk in past episodes about picture-perfect participatory democracy, well, Pendle saw it for himself. We're at a gathering of about 15 people... And Howard Dean is standing in, in the, in, uh, next to the fireplace at a house. The beginning, believe it or not, there is snow beginning to fall, like the first snowfall of the season. No. The, the kids are running around, you know, in their stocking feet upstairs having fun. And meanwhile, we are getting into it on the future of American politics. Uh, and I'm like, this is the most idyllic thing. I'm the only reporter there to watch this. And I actually cry. I'm like, this is why you come to cover politics in New Hampshire. That idea that New Hampshire makes better presidents, Pindle is all in. Now, he wants to be clear. He hears the representation and diversity arguments, and he thinks they're valid. But he deeply believes that if New Hampshire and Iowa aren't first, America loses something. What bothers me right now is that uh, looking ahead at this particular presidential cycle, this what Iowa and New Hampshire, the, everything I just said, the reasons I cry, the reasons that, uh, that Iowa and New Hampshire matter the most have been dissolving. 
dissolving. Not gone, but Pindle sees something happening here. Something that will even impact the way his team covers the election. He brought this all up last year with his bosses at the Boston Globe. And I said, I know what's going to happen. We're going to meet probably next week, which we did. And we're going to, someone's going to go over to the shelf and they're going to take this old dusty template, the New Hampshire primary template, and they're going to come over here and they're going to blow off all the dust and they're going to say, all right, so here's the deal. We know how these campaigns work. We know um, when we need to staff up, we need to staff up. You know, here, here. But Pindle told his editors, that's not going to work this time. We can't cover this thing like we used to. The things that used to matter don't matter anymore. And my point to the Globe was that this template, this model, is dissolving in front of our eyes. Uh, And we can't think of it the same way. Pindle doesn't know exactly when this change started, but there were signs in 2016. We all saw them. President Donald Trump didn't have to campaign the old way to win New Hampshire. There was no hustling up to the North Country to shake hands at grocery stores. And he hardly picked up any key endorsements from New Hampshire activists. Because Trump had a national brand, shaped by years of TV appearances. And now, leading up to 2020, Pindle says he sees evidence of this change everywhere. Now that we are so many months in on this primary, I think there's absolutely no doubt that the cloud of the state has significantly suffered. To see what Pendle's talking about, this dissolving he's describing, we decided to send Jack Rodolico out on the trail with him. Thank you for covering this. It's going to be really good. I met up with Pendle at a presidential campaign stop. The candidate was New York Senator Kirsten Gillibrand. She was here in New Hampshire to announce her mental health care plan. It was a pretty classic campaign event by New Hampshire primary standards, a candidate trying to make some news, using a policy speech to get in front of crucial early voters. And this event, it is not some big rally. There are just over a dozen people here sitting in a conference room at this community health center. The room is so small, in fact, that Pindle has to whisper to me so that Gillibrand doesn't hear us talking about her. She's just on the other side of the room. This is the, the Hampshire way is that you slowly build up with events like this. You have to do something on a random 10 o'clock on a Tuesday so the crowd size doesn't matter, even though the president is obsessed with them. Um, but you make a pitch, you get press, you get build momentum. But the problem is her election day isn't in February when the Hampshire primary is. Her election day is about eight days away from this event. Her election day, Pindle says, isn't the New Hampshire primary. It's qualifying for the debates to get in front of TV viewers across the country. This stop was in late August, and at that moment, Gillibrand was in trouble. She wasn't polling well enough, and she needed more donations from normal people across the country, or else she wasn't going to get one of those coveted spots on the debate stage in September. Historically, it's New Hampshire and Iowa that candidates hold out for, because those states have power to winnow the field. This year, as the Democratic National Committee tries to deal with a massive field of candidates, they are setting the thresholds for these debates. And that changes the metrics for all these candidates. And it's very tough. She's just going all out, which you can't blame her. She's spaghetti against the wall. Pindle says candidates' behavior and strategy is changing. Now more than ever, their focus isn't just here. They need to get on CNN on national podcasts, because the polling it takes to get into these debates, it's not just from Iowa and New Hampshire. It's lots of national polls, too. 
And that means New Hampshire's power to winnow the field, it's not what it used to be. Hey, everyone. I wanted you to hear it from me first, that after more than eight incredible months, I'm ending my presidential campaign. You must have heard by now that Gillibrand is out of the race. That event Jack and Pendle went to was actually her last one in New Hampshire. And she's not the only one. As of writing this episode, six candidates have decided it's not worth sticking it out and pinning their hopes on a surprise victory in Iowa and New Hampshire. Breaking news right now, another shakeup in the 2020 Democratic race. New York City Mayor Bill de Blasio pulled the plug on his White House bid today. Washington Governor Jay Inslee dropping out of the race. After Massachusetts Congressman Seth Moulton has just dropped out after struggling to gain traction and unable to meet the criteria to get on the debate stage next month. If there's one thing that people can take away, it's that this primary is changing before our eyes. It has threats that we don't know how to deal with. And there are people who want to put their head in the sand and say it's not happening. There are others um, who uh, don't even understand that there's a problem right now with the threat of the primary. I love what this primary has been. And if we don't recognize that we have a problem, there's no way we can fix the problem. If you can't tell, Pindle is really sweating this. Sure, it will still matter who wins the New Hampshire primary in 2020, but we don't know what that will mean exactly. Will it be a springboard to the White House or just another Delaware? For Pindle, this dilemma strikes at the core of what he sees as New Hampshire's identity. The New Hampshire primary is the identity. It's been the identity of my life, and it's been the identity of the state. And so what's it's not just that these these existential threats to the primary that we can have no control over, it's created an identity crisis in the state. And as I admitted to my bosses, it's created an identity pr- crisis with myself. What is what is a, what what am I if without the New Hampshire primary and the Iowa caucuses, something I have literally done my whole life, not mattering the same way? Pindle goes on like this for a bit, and then he stops, and he looks at me and he says. I'm not sure I really like what I'm saying here. What do you mean you don't like that? It's But it's so real, James. It's so real. Self-identity, though. I mean, it's not... Uh, I mean... I'm going to be fine. I mean, that's, that's not that's not the issue. It, uh, no, but it's like a it's like a deep part of you that and, and that's what identity is about. When I say self-interest, maybe when I say self-interest, it's not that, oh, wow, I get to interview candidates running for president. That's not it. It's that I've obviously so invested in this beautiful mythological system that I now see possibly coming to an end. And that might make you cry again. <laughs> it does. Pindle calls himself a person who is in love with the story. For years, he's written about the New Hampshire primary. He used to publish this list of powerful people in New Hampshire and which candidates they were backing. And the names on that list represented the years of political capital that New Hampshire had accumulated, the relationships that developed because of the state's role in shaping elections. It used to say something about who our next president could be. Now... Pindle's dropped that list altogether because to him, that story, it's over. (music) 
This episode was reported and produced by me, Lauren Chulgin. And if you're interested in state-by-state demographics and how they compare to the electorate as a whole, you should head on over to our website. We've got a link to our NPR colleague, Asma Khalid's great reporting from 2016. She built this fascinating data set called the Perfect State Index. And yes, if you want to see pictures of College Me with 2008 candidates and Bill Gardner, which I totally forgot about, go to our website, nhpr.org. Stranglehold is edited by NHPR's Director of Content, Maureen McMurray, and News Director, Dan Barrick, as well as Stranglehold Senior Producer, Jack Rodolico. Additional editing help came from Casey McDermott and Tony Arnold. Sound mixing by Hannah McCarthy, me, and Jason Moon. Jason and Lucas Anderson also created the dope original music in this episode, as well as this entire podcast. And one more moment for the great Jason Moon, because I truly could not have done this episode without his producing, editing, mixing, and the all-important skill of politely telling me when my writing is not funny. Rebecca Lavoie is NHPR's digital director. Sarah Plord made our beautifully aggressive podcast graphics. And of course, special thanks to my dad, Barry Chulgin, who helped us name this podcast. He is a high school wrestling coach, by the way. Does that all make more sense now? Additional thanks to Elaine K. Mark, Connor O'Brien, John DeStazo, Kathy Sullivan, Basil Battaglia, and Megan Sweeney Hall. Archival tape from C-SPAN. Stranglehold is a production of New Hampshire Public Radio. Mm-hmm.